Hello everybody and welcome back to our Bible study series in the book of Job. If you have a Bible handy, please open it up to Job chapter 41. This is the second to last installment in the Job series. Next week, we are going to be finishing it up. We're going to read Job chapter 42, and we're going to tie everything together, understanding the central messages and themes of the book, and why it is a blessing for everybody to read it. That said, as we are turning a little bit of context before we read from chapter 41, God has challenged Job. First, by letting him know and reminding Job that, yes, he is the creator of everything, of all the universe, of the plants, the animals, the sky, the snow, the frost, the rain, the dry land, all of it belongs to God. He made it. But he wants to remind Job that he made it for someone, and God wants Job to see how much he relies on God's mercy and his grace in having created the universe and running it this way. In this fashion, God reminds Job, I love you so much that I created the world for humanity. But then God discusses the animals. He goes over the animals' personalities He goes over how he watches the deer give birth. He knows when they are in this season and how long they must wait before finally giving birth to the doe. He even brought up the sillier animals like the ostrich. But also not only is the ostrich maybe lacking in wisdom, but it rejoices in its great speed. God knows these animals personally. He sees them. And what is the implication there but to say, Dear Job, not only do I love you, it is not a some kind of impersonal love. I know you. I see you. I care about you. If I care about all of these animals, how much more do you suppose I care about this righteous man, Job? And then God brings up, The behemoth. And there is a key verse, Job chapter 40, verse 14. I also acknowledge to you, if you can say yes to all these questions, that your own right hand can save you. God is now bringing up the issues of threats to humanity, and the first being the behemoth, a land-based beast that is Unlike anything we can describe today, any creature that walks the earth, it sounds more like a dinosaur. And while we don't fully understand what behemoth was, Job did. Chapter 41 gives us a second creature that, given the greater length of discussion on it, merits more attention to detail than what the behemoth received. Hear the word of our Lord from Job chapter 41. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you 
Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird, or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons, or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle, you will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength, or his goodly frame? Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? And who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him sling stones are turned to rubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. What is Leviathan? This is a question that has puzzled and confused commentators and theologians for centuries and centuries. We cannot say for absolute certain what Leviathan is. We hear these things suggesting that he dwells in the water. Okay. He has scales. Sure. One is not going to forget trying to battle him. 
Yes, very certainly. And we cannot subdue nor domesticate Leviathan. Some modern commentators say this sounds like a description of a crocodile or an alligator or some mighty, large, perhaps extinct variant of monitor lizard. There is great strength in the crocodile, especially what the closer you get to Egypt along the Nile. There is gigantic, massive crocodiles out in Australia. They're very long, very powerful. They can chew up a chicken whole and swallow it in one bite. But we can't say that Leviathan is a crocodile. In verse 18, his sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. I don't know any crocodiles that sneeze and suddenly a darkened room is lit up. I don't know any crocodiles that have glowing eyes. Verse 19, out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot in burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him, fear itself. Hmm. He breathes fire. Fire comes out of this. Well, now some commentators want to say this is an ancient depiction of a dragon. Well, very certainly... You could draw Leviathan. If you were an artist, you could paint something that, going off of this description, is going to have to look like a dragon. And every single culture on Earth has depictions of some sort of dragon, from the ancient Orient to ancient medieval literature to the ancient Greeks. Everywhere, people have talked about a dragon. Now, Job knew what our Lord was speaking about. He never stops God and says, hey, wait, what is this? Where do I find one of these leviathans or a behemoth or something? He never stops and asks, hmm, you know, God, this is very interesting what you're saying to me, but I can't figure out this leviathan thing. Could you give me a little bit more detail? No, Job responds as if he understood every last syllable that our, uh, that our Lord pronounced upon him. It was a known entity at the time for the ancients, Job writing this book probably around 2100 BC. Again, I firmly hold that this is the first book of scripture to be written. But is Leviathan your standard knightly King Arthur style dragon, or is it a an Oriental-style dragon. Thankfully, we have another description of him. This comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 27, that gives us a little bit more understanding about this Leviathan. Speaking about the day of the Lord, Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1, In that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Well, very well. Leviathan is a serpentine entity that is some sort of dragon at the same time. 
immensely powerful, immensely dark. But also, just as God understands the personalities of his creatures, so too does God understand the personality of this Leviathan. It tells us a little bit more about how to identify this creature if we look at what God says about its heart. Verse 24, his heart is hard as a stone. Hard as the lower millstone. Okay, this is a creature with a hardened heart and cannot be softened. When we are told, do not have hardened hearts like Pharaoh, when we are told to circumcise the flesh of our hearts, not our foreskins, this is a creature that cannot have an unhardened heart. Furthermore, when we go back to the end of this chapter in verse 34, the last verse says, He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. I'm beginning to suspect the Leviathan is not merely a dumb beast. It is not merely some animal that barely has self-awareness, some water dragon swimming around in the sea. No, to the contrary, this is an evil entity. This is something with a hardened heart that lords itself over everyone who has an issue with pride. I believe we're getting at the heart of this. No pun intended. Leviathan is a dark, wicked creature. And God mentions that he is the only one with any sort of authority over it. We go back to verse uh, 9 in this chapter. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Dear Job, you understand that I love you from the nature of creation, from your stomach being full of food, if indeed you've been able to eat anything. You know that I see you, dear Job, and I know you personally. If I know the animals intimately, then I know you. And Job, you understand that I am the only one that can take on massive, terrifying creatures like Behemoth. But I want to emphasize to you this existential threat in Leviathan. God has already been mentioned as being the one that put down Rahab. Job knew what his friends were speaking about when it comes to Rahab and Rahab's cult of followers out by the sea. God personally slew Rahab in front of Rahab's worshippers that they may no longer be idolaters for a creature. Behemoth. God approaches Behemoth with his sword by his side. God looks at Behemoth and says, 
there's a similar threat to you that there is for Rahab. Chapter 40, verse 19, regarding Behemoth. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. God said, I made this. Of all the land-based creatures, Behemoth was the first of them. And even I go to this creature with my sword at my hip. Likely the same sword that the prophet Isaiah brings up regarding Leviathan. That one day God will slay Leviathan with his sword. Very well. For all of us listening here in the 21st century, we go, I can draw some biblical parallels there. But what on earth does all of this mean? What again is Leviathan? Before we answer that question, what was Leviathan to Job? Job knew what God was talking about regarding Rahab, regarding Behemoth, and of course with Leviathan. And Job understands that this means he is so vulnerable to this creature, this Leviathan, he must trust in God for his salvation. In the one, the only one that can take care of this serpentine dragon. In their day, they did not have the Bible. This is the first book of the scriptures to be written. They had something, though. God loves to work through means. He converts us through the means of grace, by baptism, by the proclamation of the word, in persevering, being preserved, by communion. There was some form of this in Job's day. Indeed, since Adam and Eve were taken out from the garden. What was it, though? I wager, given that there are living creatures being mentioned here as theological points, and God in his own theodicy, his own defense of himself, brings up these creatures, I believe that there was an oral tradition regarding these animals that either like Rahab, pictured the futility of rebellion against God and showed the punishment for sin, or like Behemoth, showed that there is might in God's creations. We worship the mighty God that creates the mighty Behemoth. But we also, in Job's day, see they were aware of an existential evil, a wickedness, personified and embodied in the living serpent, Leviathan. They understood these things as living tokens, so to speak, of God's word. And of course, they had an oral tradition about Eden, about the fall, about being cast out. Something that inevitably, being oral tradition, may very well have been corrupted by some groups leading to the Enuma Elish, with Marduk slaying uh, Tiamat, the sky dragon, so to speak, and forming the sky and the earth off of Tiamat's body and blood. There are corruptions of these traditions, and Job predates those corruptions. His book predates them, thankfully, as a means by which people were preserved. A note on that, 
if you decide to do independent study about this and you read about Leviathan or Rahab, you may hear a supposed ancient Near Eastern chaos monster motif. Oh, Baal destroyed a water serpent at some point that was a chaos monster. Marduk destroys Tiamat and thus creates order in the universe. And of course this means Job is heavily borrowing from these ancient Near Eastern tribes. But there's one difference. A difference that lends credence to Job's narrative being true and these other narratives being woefully false. Leviathan is not a chaos monster. Chaos is not necessarily evil. And what do I mean by that? God wants a personal relationship with you. And one of the things that lends to Job being commended so well in this book is that he treats God personally. If God wanted a clockwork universe where every creature does what it is pre-programmed to do according to the circumstances which are pre-programmed and decreed before the existence of the universe and eons past, none of this would be happening. There would have been no fall in Eden. There would have been no chance for mankind to do anything off the reservation. And since we understand God is not evil, he does not desire wickedness nor sin, this is not something he forced in mankind. He desired for mankind to make choices that were spontaneous, perhaps informed by previous actions, but nonetheless chaotic enough to say, I want to wear the yellow pants this morning. Chaotic enough to say, I think I'll have eggs instead of cereal to make decisions that are off of some pre-planned reservation. A little bit of chaos is perfectly fine. A little bit of unpredictability. Leviathan is cited as an evil creature, not because it represents chaos and unpredictability, but because his heart is hard and he is the king of the proud. That is what is cited. Leviathan is a living, it is actual, embodiment of evil. And so, for Job, to bring up Leviathan to him is to say, I am the only one that can save you from wickedness himself. Now, living here in the 21st century, having the 66 books of the canon in our hands, we can cross-reference in Scripture and say, wait a minute. A dragon that is a serpent, that is proud, that is wicked, that has a hardened heart, something that will not listen to compassion, it will not listen to diplomacy, Where have I heard that before? Well, let us go to Genesis chapter 3, where we might have an inkling as to what this creature is and why it would be so important for God to say, I am your only line of defense, dear Job. I am the only one that can deliver you from this. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent 
was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is a serpent that is crafty, that is wicked, that tempts Eve in the garden to sin, and she does. Her husband follows, and thus with his headship, all of humanity finds itself doomed. But wait a moment. Isaiah said that this is a serpent and a dragon of sorts. It is not just a serpent. There's something more to it. So let's go to the opposite end of scripture. Let us read from Revelation chapter 12. At first the serpent arrives, while we are turning there, at first the serpent arrives and deceives. If this is Leviathan, it certainly could have just killed Adam and Eve. But this is a crafty, wicked, hard-hearted creature that wants to do more than just destroy creation. Oh no, it's got to be twisted, corrupted, made wicked. But still, this creature wants to show its power. Revelation chapter 12, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars in heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. I believe I've said enough. A dragon that is a serpent, that is the king of the proud, that deceives, that lies, that destroys, that persecutes, what else could this be but the devil himself? On some level, we understand that the devil was likely possessing a serpent in the Garden of Eden. And maybe dragons are real, 
or were real, they appear to be extinct now unless you count the Komodo dragon. But even then, if there were real dragons running about, referred to as Leviathan, everybody understood that the living revelation of God was there to say, this is a symbol for evil. Because there is a great red dragon that seeks to destroy you. And you have no power over it, dear Job. You cannot bribe it. You cannot put a hook in its nose or in its jaw. You cannot get a fishing pole out there to go out and bring it in. The traders are not going to cut it up and serve it up to people willing to purchase some Leviathan meat. You have no control. You are completely powerless over this wicked, hard-hearted, evil creature. You are entirely dependent on me, God says to dear Job. And with that, Job hears, and it is at that moment that Job will speak. But think of it this way, beloved. If Leviathan is the devil, and I don't think that's a big stretch to say, that he is the devil, or perhaps a living creature that represents the devil that Job knew of, we too, just like Job, are just as powerless before the devil. We are not Doom Guy from the video game series, standing there with a shotgun, blowing away demons on Mars because we're so cool. We are not a D&D paladin with his shining longsword ready to cut down the servants of Satan. To the contrary, not only do we understand we are powerless to destroy the devil ourselves or to stand up to him ourselves, we have to rely on God if we wish to be spared. Because otherwise, the devil ends up being our king. If we refuse to believe in God and to trust in Christ for our salvation, well, we don't belong to him because we are too proud to belong to him. This would mean if we are proud, we would belong to the king of the proud and thus suffer his fate. God tells Job in this moment, listen, you have one of two kings as, of, as all humanity does. The king of creation that cares about you, the only one that can stand up and slay this dragon, me? Or like the rest of humanity, the wicked out there, they belong to the devil, they worship the devil, they follow after the devil, and thus they will go to his rotten, dark, burning place forever. And God says, I know that you trust in me, Job. Because there's no one else that could save you from this creature that everybody in Job's day was clearly afraid of. Having established his love, his intimate knowledge of his creatures, having established his being on guard against other gigantic representations of his power like the behemoth and his opposition to evil and to the evil one, the great red dragon and serpent Leviathan or Satan, 
God has fully made his case to Job. He does not say, I had a cosmic bet with the devil, and you were a part of that. You were a pawn in that to demonstrate that people do not worship me from mercenary perspectives, Job. You got to understand your faith is legitimate. You had to be the example here. He does not explain Job's suffering by telling him exactly what's happening. He tells Job what a faithful and godly man needs to hear in that moment. I love you. I know you. I see what you're going through. And I am protecting you from all manner of earthly material threats. Potential threats and actual threats like behemoth. And I stand against evil for you, for the sake of your eternal soul, dear Job. That is God's answer to suffering today, yesterday, since Job asked the question, why me? And even before then, this has been God's answer to us. He loves us. He sees us. He knows us. He protects us. He gives us our daily bread. And he stands against the only thing. He's the only one that stands against the devil who would love nothing more than to see us burn in hell for all eternity just like he is destined to burn. That is God's answer to suffering that pierces through all of our reason, through all of our objections, through our pain. It says to us that this God is for us. He says to you in your pain, I am for you. Even if nobody else is for you, I am for you. I care. I am active in your life, and even if it doesn't look like it, I need you to trust me because nobody else can save you. That, beloved, is God's answer to suffering in this life. And it is difficult for some that have not reached a level of spiritual maturity to accept. If they are new believers, to hear I love you in the face of why am I suffering is difficult, but it is a far more valuable answer than the mechanical details of why our circumstances are the way they are. Because God's ultimate answer regarding our suffering has for, far more value to us in eternity than, oh yes, this is what happened, that is why you suffered. He gives us an eternal, invaluable, beating heart answer that, as we see next week, brings Job's harm, his pain, everything to heal and leads him to repent in dust and ashes, in part, yes, for sorrow, for him forgetting that God loves him, but also, I would wager, for relief, his heart finally found the answer that it was looking for. We will address that in the final upload on Job next week. Until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen. <laughs>